Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller. It's the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. And the countdown is on. This is the 199th Studcast. And next week, we'll hit number 200, which is a huge milestone for the storyteller in wrestling. Now please welcome the originator of the Studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Stud Cast, we step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. What's going on, Ron? Oh, man. Doing great, Dave. Doing great. Glad to be here. Another big one. Numbers are getting up there huge, man. 199. And as you just mentioned, uh, <laughs> we're we're looking at 200 next week. Wow. Uh, what a heck of a ride it's been. You know, and... Uh, <laughs> And we we got another good one today, man. We we've got some of these big national stars, and things are happening for sure. Oh no doubt. Listen, you've done a lot of these, so I'm wondering. We're at number one ninety nine. Is it just another stud cast? Well, I like all of them. Every one of them are special to me. Uh, you know, I, I and I've gotten aware in the last hundred and fifty probably. I spend a lot of time in preparation for them and. And and they're all kind of special to me, but uh, obviously that number two hundred is, uh, yeah, I guess that's a that's it. That is truly a milestone. We're going to talk about that one later in this show. I think fans are going to really, really uh, like uh, what I have picked. I had everybody get involved on social media that wanted to and offer me these suggestions for number two hundred, and and the one I picked, I think, uh, wow, I think uh, fans are going to really like it. Oh, no doubt. Uh, and listen, you and our producer in San Francisco, Lou, were just talking about the, the Super Studcast, part one of Super Studcast number 41, which has just been released. And listen, this thing is absolutely huge. And there's a side to Arn Anderson that a lot of folks have never heard about. And you're going to hear about it on this Studcast. I know you're excited about this one. The oh. subject is, yep. is, he's a product of the Southeastern Continental Wrestling. He got a huge break working for those companies and went on to become one of the greatest wrestling stars of all time. He, he started working for you, Ron, as a job boy on TV, if you can believe that, and became Southeastern Tag Champion, Continental Champion, Tag Champion with numerous partners around the world, a four horseman, no less, a star in WCW and WWE, and respected by fans and wrestlers 
alike. Super Studcast number 41. Dude, you hooked up with a huge one. The man in the sport from the late 1980s until the 2000s. The enforcer, Arn Anderson. So, listen, what do you say? What do you feel about this thing? This, uh, this, uh, this thing is awesome. Oh, well, I'll tell you, Dave, uh, you know, uh, Lou and I having just recorded it a few days back. Uh, the first 15 minutes of this studcast, this super studcast, is it's absolutely mind-boggling you know, about uh, where Arn came from and what he dealt with as a as a young man. And uh, wow. And it just goes from there. You know, part one is basically a longer discussion about uh, what happened in Southeastern, what happened in Continental, uh, how he got there. It's it's a pretty remarkable super stud cast. I'm very proud of it. I think it's going to be uh, one of the one of the all time best that we've done so far. Mm. Well, listen, we're we're looking forward to part two, and you've got Arn coming back for part two. So, how, how long did you guys go? You talked? Did you talk a couple of hours, ninety minutes? What'd you do? We we talked about a, a good ninety minutes, maybe a little past ninety minute mark. And we just got to uh, his <laughs> getting ready to leave Southeastern and Continental and, and move uh, on to the real big time. So, you know, uh, a lot covered in that 90 minutes uh, and a lot of talk about different stars and, uh, and uh, a lot of Bob Armstrong in there and guys that were influential uh, to, to Arn. And, uh, you know, and, and I seemed to be somewhat influential to him as well. Wow. Uh, it's just, it's just a, it's a tremendous super stud cast. Uh, uh, it'll be a classic, no doubt. If he's anything like his persona, as you would see as the enforcer, you would think he would be pretty tight lipped and, and maybe difficult to get anything out of him, but he, he was not like that at all with you. No, no. I mean, uh, uh, quite the opposite. I mean, like I say, the first 15 minutes is going to set the tone for all of it. And it had me, I had goosebumps. I was like, wow, man, I never, I never knew any of it. You know, I was like, well, geez, I never, never realized uh, what a tough upbringing he had. Yeah. And even you thought you knew Arn Anderson. So that's, yeah. that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I found out I knew very little at all about Arn. <laughs> that's <laughs> Which awesome. is really crazy, you know, but uh, yeah, it, it's really good. I uh, think fans out there, they, they, they want if they've, they've not listened to one of these, I believe this is a good one to start on. This is a great super stud cast. It's uh, I don't think anybody will find anything uh, like it out there. Oh, no doubt. TNstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. But you're going to find every one, every studcast, every super studcast at TNstud.com. And again, all the super studcast at Patreon. Dot com as well. All right, Ron, listen, of course, your contributions to the sport have been legendary in a lot of ways. You you have brought a lot of folks into the business and your wrestling accomplishments on top of that. Just incredible. Add Hulk Hogan, the junkyard dog, Sylvester Ritter, Doug Furnish to the list as well, because they're also developed. They develop their skills in your companies, too. So you've, your contribution just continues. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm lucky. Um, I'm really blessed to have had a lot of great young talent come through that, uh, you know, that uh, guys that, that needed some development, uh, guys that appreciated it, 
you know, and uh, and you mentioned a few of them, and God, there's so many more of them. You got the Honky Tonk Man, you got Dr. D, yeah. David Schultz, Lord Humongous, Brutus the Barber Beefcake, uh, Jerry Stubbs, Mr. Olympia, Dutch Mantel, Jacques Rougeau, Dr. Tom Pritchard. I mean, wow. I mean, I'm just thinking of the guys that were young guys that came that uh, are going to have a big future ahead of them. And uh, we were lucky to be a part of that and uh, getting them kicked off and in the right direction. Uh, just uh, uh, blessed, been really blessed by the good Lord to to been in the wrestling business and have these type of guys just show up on the doorstep and say, yeah. what can you do for me? Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. And listen, uh, one more time, Studcast fans, because this is really just amazing information. If you're not already patrons of the Super Studcast and have not been listening to these weekly, tremendous historical broadcasts, the next Super Studcast number 41, again, with Arn Anderson, is a great place to start, as the stud was just saying. You can hear it again at tnstud.com. Click on Super Studcast, pick number 41, or go to patreon.com slash studcast and hear everything. This is a true deep dive into Arn Anderson. Each Super Studcast, only $2.99. Most of them are all over three hours of awesome wrestling history, and you will find everything right there. And amazingly, you've already had a, plenty, a lot of time with Arn Anderson and you're bringing him back for part two, that is included in the 299. Two parts, over three hours, the best deal in wrestling. Good job, stud. Thank you very much, Dave. Uh, and when you hear it, and, I, and I'm sure you will, uh, you, 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 you listen to everything we do. And uh, I think just as impressed as I was, uh, it's, it's really something special. Oh, no doubt. All right, so there, listen, I think they're all great. But another reminder, again, about next week's, Studcast number 200 is coming next week. You said last Studcast that you would announce the winner of the contest to decide what Studcast number 200 was going to be about. You mentioned that earlier. So when are we going to get into that info, Ron? Well, are you back on your horse, Mr. Pickles, again, man? Oh, you better. Are you jealous? Asking. Huh? Are you jealous? No, no, I'm not jealous, but I, I'm I'm wondering, man. You know, Mr. Pickles, he's getting a little faster, it seems like to me. And uh, you know, I believe he's kind of got you uh, ready to go. Uh, I I think we're gonna what we're gonna do, Dave, is we're gonna put first things first. Then uh, you and you and Mr. Pickles gonna get your answer here before the show's over. I guarantee you that. But uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna. <laughs> go to first things first, and then right now we got a another great stud cast to go before we get to that 200. And uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about this one today, which is a tremendous event uh, in May of 1977. It's got we're going to talk Terry Funk, we're going to talk for the Naco, we're going to talk some real stars today, and uh, I think uh, that's where I believe I'd like to start. All right, let's get to it. On the trail, right? On the trail, my man. You know, sometimes, uh, you, you know, the longer you keep somebody waiting on something, you know, Dave, uh, the more impact uh, it's going to have maybe when you deliver it. So at the end of this show, we're going to jump on that number 200 a little bit and describe it. But, uh, you know, right now we're going to jump into today's show and uh, we're going to start that one out uh, with today's training. Uh, and this today's training is I'm going to call it a Booker special. We're going to talk a lot about bookers here and uh, and the importance that they had to wrestling companies. 
And what makes the difference between the lousy booker and the great one, you know? And then we're going to ride into that Coliseum, man, on Friday night, March the 12th, 1977. Terry Funk's going to be back with us in that card. Tor Tanaka is going to be back with us on that card. Uh, it's TV. We're going to talk about that TV. And that happens to be the first Saturday in the month of May, 1977. And guess what May is? What is, what is it's May? That, it's that rating month, man. Oh, We're yes. back into that rating period again. It's and, money uh, time, right? Yeah. yeah, it's money time. That's it, man. <laughs> it's money time. And boy, we're going we're gonna to hammer them with four great shows in May. This is the first of the four. Uh, we got a big surprise for everybody in this one, as a matter of fact. We're going to look at then at the results of that card of May the 12th. And uh, we'll talk uh, just, we'll cover the attendance. Then uh, we've got a tremendous learning tree question today, Dave. And, uh, and uh, you know, the question is, before they all looked like bodybuilders in the 1980s, did most wrestlers rely on matches to keep them fit? And who were wrestlers noted for any other type of fitness training? What a heck of a question. Two great questions here. And, uh, and I got a particular person in mind that fits that second part of that question perfectly. So we're going to get a really good one today. All right. Sounds like another great ride. Mr. Pickles and I, as you guessed earlier, of course, we are saddled up and ready to hit the trail. So I've got him under control now, Ron. He gets faster every ride, and I just hope lightning can keep up today. So wh where are we riding to first? Okay. Don't worry about lightning, my man. He, he's going to always be there. So, so well, you know, Dave, uh, Mr. Pickles, you know, uh, he's not a bad-looking horse, but his name leaves a little sour taste in my mouth. I got to tell you that. No, don't understand that part of it. Stop so. biting him on the ear. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's why I got the bad pates. Yeah, my yeah probably so. <laughs> so either way, man, we're headed headed into today's training. And uh, this one, as I said earlier, is about bookers and their importance in wrestling and their different styles of booking. Uh, every booker was uh, different in their style. They were different in the angles that they worked. Uh, they were different in the length of their programs that they did uh, with two different guys, the distance ahead of time that they planned into the future, uh, and how many wrestlers they could get highly involved in each card each week. I mean, there was so many things that made bookers different and unique. So let's break down each of these requirements for every booker. And uh, let's uh, see if we can teach listeners today what each of these kind of meant and what they entailed. So a Booker's style, to me, the first thing was about him that made him unique was his style was a combination of angles, of his programs, uh, the length of those programs, and how he ran his angles uh, after he started these programs, how far out he was creating all of this stuff, how many different wrestlers. Uh, there was a whole lot of things. So a Booker's style was first determined by me, my, my way of seeing it, by his angles. People out there go, well, I hear that word all the time, but I really don't understand what an angle is. Well, an angle is very simple. It, it's just like a heat-getting event that begins to happen between two wrestlers that um, makes fans want to see those two guys wrestle against each other. And an angle can be something as simple as, say, two guys just arguing with each other, and one of them slaps the other's face. Now, that's an angle. I mean, something started here between these two individuals that's going to lead fans to want to see 
something else develop out of it. Or it could be as complicated as, let's take, for instance, the Ronnie Garvin angle that we're right in the middle of now in, in the past few studcasts and in this one. And uh, he was built, obviously, when he came in as a heel. And all of a sudden, he came to Rob and I and said, I got to leave the territory. Uh, we had to turn him babyface. Uh, he lost the loser leave match. He mm -hmm. disappeared for a month. And then he comes back with a mask on. And everybody knows who he is, but he's got a different name. Uh, so, you know, that's a concept of a bunch of angles that are all produced to create. It, it creates an interest from the fans and uh, really gets them involved in what's going on. And all of these things happen with Ronnie Garvin in a period of two months. And uh, one of those months, he wasn't even on a card. So, I mean, <laughs> so we... We were doing a whole lot of things with Ronnie Garvin, but a good booker doesn't do that with just one person or two guys. He does it with a bunch of others. So those bookers that couldn't see or create these strong angles, they weren't obviously ever going to build anybody's big TV audience or draw any really large crowds for any promoter, any owners. So many fans were able, obviously, to anticipate angles, but guy's not good and he's, he don't have any smarts and he can't figure a great angle. Fans are going to figure out what his angle's all about. And then they're going to be able to tell you what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and if you've got that kind of a booker, you're in trouble as a wrestling company. Last thing you want to is the fans to tell you, you what you're going to do. <laughs> Too predictable. Yeah. Too yeah. predictable. So yeah. the great bookers, yeah. they created great angles. Seems like uh, that's what you were, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know that I was a great booker, but uh, you know, I, I like to come up with ideas, and I like to uh, stay ahead of people. I like to not wow. get caught by my fans. So uh, great bookers, they get, they get an angle started, and then they just keep adding angles on top of that until the fans get blown away. They're trying to figure out what's going on, and and when they finally realize that. I can't figure out what they're going to do. Then they quit trying to figure it out. And then because they're never right, they never figured it out. And uh, so, and when that happens, then you really hook those fans as real wrestling fans. And uh, then as TV audiences grow, man, and your buildings explode in size and the crowds. And uh, that was the kind of booker every wrestling company wanted. So let's talk about the second thing that determine a booker style, the programs. And the programs, there again, is a term maybe a lot of people don't understand. The program is just simply the types of different matches that you put two guys at an angle into. And uh, programs can last two weeks. They can last, some of them can last three months. Some of them, like the Armstrongs and the, and the stud staple angles in, in the 80s, can last for years. So the programs and the kind of matches that were strung together between opponents after an angle were done, uh, that's basically what they were. And uh, you did that to get more big crowds uh, out of that angle. So as in a simple example of a program, a program usually started out with two guys. Maybe they slapped each other. They're going to wrestle each other. And the second week, you know, the first week, the match ends up in a disqualification. You know, the next week, the match becomes a no DQ match. 
The next week after that, maybe it's a submission match. The only way you can win is by making the opponent submit. Then it works your way up to maybe a Texas death match and then a lights out match and then a cage match. So, And usually the longer one of these programs ran, the bigger the crowds got. So, you know, great bookers, they knew how to not only work the angles, but they knew how to program them, man, and how long they could get money out of them and keep those crowds and the fans interested in it. Third element I mentioned in determining the booker style was how far out he planned his angles and his programming. And some could only plan ahead a couple of weeks. Heck, I think some territories had boogers that couldn't plan to get two weeks, you know, and they didn't know what to do next week, you know. So the further out you plan, the better your crowds and the TV audience was going to be growing, and the better you are going to be in the case of somebody getting hurt or something strange happening inside the crew that all of a sudden now you had to make a change. And uh, if you're far out, you could you could handle that, uh, you know. Uh, and we had to be far out in the Ronnie Garvin as an example uh, when this came down. We were far out in that angle at that point, and we were able to adjust and make it work, and, and luckily we were able to bring him back. So the distance between the pre-planning ahead often allowed for an, an instant, almost instant adjustments. In case your idea, you had a great idea, you thought this is going to be good, you see three weeks of it, and all of a sudden, you know, you realize that this isn't working. And it gives you an opportunity if you plan ahead to have a backup plan. So the last element in determining the booker style for me was how many wrestlers could that booker figure angles and programs with at the same time? You know, so then steadily, you know, he, then he, he the good ones could involve those those different wrestlers, a bunch of different wrestlers in angles and programs. Uh, on the same card week after week. And that's where you really started to string together a growth in your company. And this could only be done by great bookers. And uh, they had to have great talent in their crews from top to bottom to be able to make it happen. And when great bookers began to build their companies into powerhouses, they began to attract better and better wrestlers. The bigger your crowds, the better the wrestlers that wanted to come and work for you, the more great wrestlers you had working for you, the more guys you could put into angles and put on the card. And the more great wrestlers you had to bookers, the more you could get involved in angles and programs, all of them at one time. So unsuccessful territories usually had only one angle and program running at a time. I think back and uh, Nick Goulas comes to mind. You know, and I, I don't know that Nick, I don't think Nick actually booked his territory very much. But uh, his bookers weren't very good, and they, they, they could never seem to get more than one angle in a program going at once. Very successful bookers could get many angles and programs happening at the same time, involving many different faces and wrestlers, and they could do it on a regular basis. So Nick's shows were nowhere near as exciting as your shows. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, people came uh, to see one match in his show and a lot of his earlier matches really stunk because those wrestlers were very very bad most of the time mm-hmm. and uh, only something only happened that they were interested in in one match and uh, good territory and one that's really filled with great wrestlers and got a great booker 
you'll have four or five matches on that card that fans come to see rather than just one. Obviously, you're going to draw more people if you're doing that kind of business than if you have a bad booker. Oh, no doubt. And as, and as you've talked about over the last number of weeks and, and even beyond was the first match was main event material. Yeah. Into the second match and the third match and every match was had a buildup and, and had a story. So the booking and, and the angles were everywhere in your organization versus Nick had one exciting match. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. And obviously if you're a wrestling fan, which one would you rather be sitting in the building yeah. and watching? I mean, uh, it's yeah. pretty easy to answer that. Hopefully, people uh, get a little better understanding for what booking was all about. Uh, with oh, no this, doubt. This little today's training. Yeah, and it's so it's obviously how important that one person was to the success of, of, of a wrestling company, and and that was that was really between Rob and you. Yeah, it, 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 in nineteen seventy seven, uh, we were kind of co bookers. And we were both uh, sitting together and talking about uh, what are we going to do with this guy? What are we going to do with that guy? And then the more people we could get involved and the more angles we could come up with, the bigger the crowds grew. And that's what exploded Southeastern uh, between 1975 and 1977. In that two-year period of time, talent grew significantly. Houses drew significantly. uh, Wrestlers were better. Uh, angles were better. All of it was better. And that's what made it become the best small territory in the world. Yeah. And, and I was going to a- add to that with not only your, your phone rang all the time. So that tells you folks wanted to come and wrestle for you. But compared to your company being that good, how were there other great bookers bookers out there that were were there any anything that compared to what you were doing? Oh, yeah. I mean, there were some great bookers out there, obviously, you know, uh, and there were a lot of bad ones. I mean, you know, I'd say probably uh, maybe less than half of the NWA territories had what I would consider to be great bookers. And uh, some of the biggest territories in the world that weren't in the NWA, they had even worse bookers. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I couldn't understand, you know, why some of the huge territories weren't drawing. Uh, you know, it just didn't make any sense. They had all the big cities and they had all the population, but they had bookers that just couldn't make it happen. And, uh, no critical if you own a wrestling company. Yeah. And did they have the same elements that you did? Did they all have a TV show? And then obviously followed by a big, a big Saturday show. Absolutely. I mean, you, you didn't have a wrestling territory and you, (laughs) you, you didn't have a business if you didn't have a TV. So, yeah, they had all the TVs. They had the TVs. They had the same uh, potential to get great talent. They, right. they had all they had to do was have a, a great booker. And was, a lot of them yeah. could never lay their hands on a great booker. <laughs> and then creativity was lacking, obviously, in a lot of those markets. All right. That's that's why I love these today's training segments. That's that's really cool. You're teaching a unique brand of wrestling history, Rod. All right. So where do we let's get back on the trail. Where to next? Well, we're going to ride into that Coliseum, man, on Friday night, May the 12th, 1977. And uh, on that card is going to be Tor Tanaka, who's returning. He's going to be in the first match. That tells you quite a bit about how that the territory has changed. Uh, Tanaka was a main eventer. He comes back, and, uh, you know, he's he's got a place on the first match, and he has a hard time. 
you know, things have changed dramatically. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure Tora sat there in the dressing room and is looking around and he's going, wow, things aren't like it was when I left here, man. So uh, he's, uh, he's wrestling against Bill Dundee, who's a star from the Memphis side of the state. And uh, Tanaka's going to be back later in the course of the night and another involved in another match. Mm-hmm. Norwell Austin, second match, wrestling against my brother, Robert. Uh, Bob Wharton Jr. in the third match is going to be wrestling against the number one hillbilly, Ron Wright. Uh, <laughs> Tony Charles and Mr. Knoxville, talk about an odd tag team, are going to get a shot at the Von Steigers Southeastern Tag Championship on this card. Then there's going to be a 10-round boxing match with 16-ounce with gloves, which are heavy gloves, and boy, that makes you tired when you get one of those. And uh, Tor Tanaka is going to be back out to the ring not involved in the match, except he's going to second Bob Armstrong, who's going to be boxing the Mongolian Stomper and <laughs> Stomper seconded by Gorgeous George Jr. Yeah. <laughs> so we got a 10-round boxing match along with all these others, and the main event is going to be a Texas death match between me and Terry Funk. Wow. And the winner is going to get Harley Race in the middle of the following month of June, 1977. Oh, no. So all of that on this one card. That's a, that's a pretty great card right there. So, I mean, and to me, it sounds like it's as good as, as the card two weeks earlier. You and Funk in a Texas death match, then a 10-round boxing match, Tony Charles and Mr. Knoxville partners for the Southeastern Tag Title match, and three more matches on top of that. That's a good deal right there. Yeah, I thought it was a, it was a really good card, man. And, uh, and what we were trying to do at this point, Dave, is we wanted to maintain that sellout that had happened two weeks earlier. We wanted to continue to keep our crowds in that 6,000 number range uh, mm-hmm. where we did not lose any momentum, and we just continued to grow the company as much as we could. We had reached the capacity of our largest building. That's a that's a little bit of a downfall. But um, we the, the point was then, and and uh, our goal was to just keep selling it out. Oh no doubt. I mean, once you go, once you make it to the top, what do you do? And and sometimes it's more difficult to stay on top than it is to get to the top the first time. So, all right, all right. I'm guessing the TV for Saturday, May sixth of seventy seven is next. So I can't wait to hear what's on this one. So, uh, well, let's get right to it, Dave, man. Uh, this TV was the first, as I said, of the four TVs that we're going to have in the month of May, 1977, which is a rating month. There's only four rating months in the year. And, uh, this TV was loaded. I mean, it was so loaded that it's going to open up. The very first thing seen is going to be Harley races face the NWA world champion, a belt over his shoulder. And uh, obviously uh, my conversation with Sam Muchnick after that Harley match two weeks earlier, had really hit home. You know, Harley told me, you know, in the dressing room when he got his payoff to inform Muchnick that he wanted to come back to Southeastern as often as he could. So now we had really moved up, man. We had been there for three years at this point. And uh, we were lucky to get the champion every two times a year. And mm-hmm. now we're getting the champion back in six weeks after he came. So, so yeah. So it's obviously making a statement. So Harley's there to open the show. He announced 
the date himself that he's going to be coming back, June 24th, 1977. He, he said he didn't really care much for the people of the southeastern area, <laughs> you know, but he was going to come back anyway to defend his world title again. And, you know, he mentioned me and that I had lasted the hour with him and that few men could do that, you know, and but that it was never going to happen again. We would never, he said, I would never have an hour match with him again. I will beat him before the hour ends. And then he brought up Terry Funk, oddly enough. And he says, you know, Terry, Terry Funk's still in the conversation here, you know, and, uh, he, he called it the race to beat Harley race. You know, he said, mm -hmm. I don't care which of them it is. You know, he said that Terry Funk's still in it, uh, but, uh, that both contenders are going to have to battle it out. He knew the card. He said the next Friday night in Knoxville, these two contenders are going to battle it out in a Texas death match. And I'm going to wrestle the one that wins that match. <laughs> so less officially, officially opened the show immediately after the Harley interview. And, uh, on this show, uh, the main event basically on this show is going to be me defending the Southeastern TV championship against the Mongolian stomper on television. Wow. So I'm sitting at the set with Les, and I got the big old TV trophy there sitting on the desk beside me. And uh, Les announced that I'd be facing Stomper last match of the show for the TV championship, and that I'd be meeting Terry Funk the following Friday night in the Texas death match. And the winner of that's going to wrestle Harley Race in six weeks. So obviously, I had a lot going on that day, and then the extremely important match the following night, following Friday. And Les wished me luck, both those matches, and, and I left the set with the trophy. When I was leaving, Ron Wright was coming to the set. And boy, the fans were always delighted to see old Ron. He hadn't been there in a few weeks. And the cheers, you know, the cheers were coming for old Ron. And about the same time as the cheers started, Bob Orton Jr. came into the studio because he's wrestling the first match of the day. And uh, instantly, the cheers obviously turned from Cheers to booze. And uh, Orton the night before had just beat Jimmy Golden in a loser leave Southeastern match in the Coliseum. And the studio fans, they weren't going to soon forget seeing Jimmy Golden carried out of that ring the night before and having to leave Southeastern. In mm -hmm. fact, they're not going to see Jimmy for quite a while in wow. Southeastern. So Les welcomed Ron Wright, who was wrestling Orton the following Friday night. He's wrestling against Orton. And as the match began, uh, they started to discuss just how dangerous Bob Orton Jr. was. And uh, during the course of this short conversation, because Bob Orton Jr. didn't take long to beat guys, Ron Wright reminded Les that Orton had injured, injured his brother, Donnie, about two months earlier, and that Donnie hadn't wrestled since. They hammered the fact that Orton is a dangerous guy. So after his TV victory, Orton... Uh, he, he, and in this TV victory, he had another guy carried out. He dropped another guy on his head, just as he had done with both Jimmy Golden and with Ron Wright's brother, Donnie. And uh, Orton stopped at the set on his way out to the studio. Ron Wright was just about to leave the set, and they almost crossed paths. And the camera picks it up, and they get the microphone does well. And Orton turns to Ron Wright as he's walking past him. And he's, he's in a real cocky little statement. He says, uh, he asked him, he says, how's your brother doing? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, so obviously the studio picked it up 
you know, the crowd, the crowd heard it, you know, and uh, wow, they started booing like big time. So, uh, you know, and then Orton went on, obviously. I don't think he really wanted to start anything with right there, right then. But, you know, Ron Wright, it just, boy, you could, his face turned red, man. He was mad, you know, and uh, so he answered him. Orton just kept walking. He didn't stop to hear the answer, but Ron Wright answered him, and he said something like, you know, Better than you when I get get through giving you a good old Tennessee dog whooping next Friday. <laughs> so the studio pop man, they 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 almost had it right there. It was almost a little uh, a little something went down between them and it didn't happen. But uh, it was still a, a nice little element of the show. So I came back to the set. Uh, I'm actually there for the first interview, and I started out by getting getting a, another shot talked about I'm, I, I've got an opportunity to get another shot at Harley. All I got to do is beat Terry Funk in a Texas death match, which that's, that's a big statement right there. I mean, it ain't like that's a small thing to do. And, uh, and then I even pushed it now. And if I win this match, I want to talk to the NWA about making the next match between me and Harley. Since the last one was a one hour draw, making it a 90 minute match. And uh, then I turned the conversation back to Terry Funk, you know, and I got to the point that, uh, you know, I was just, uh, I just, I said, I just I can't seem to put Terry Funk behind me, this, you know, I mean, what's the deal here? You know, I beat Terry Funk and why I got to go back to beat him again. And this time it's in his type of match and his family's match they're famous for, as a matter of fact, the Texas death match. And uh, that the NWA, I said, it seems like the NWA is determined to get Funk in the match with Harley Race in Knoxville. What's that all about, you know? And the fans picked up on that, and they booed that, you know, because, you know, who would want to see Terry Funk wrestle Harley Race for the world championship in Knoxville? So (laughs) that didn't make a lot of sense, you know, and I don't think that's something the fans were looking for. I, I felt like the NWA's looking for it, or Southeastern's looking for it. Somebody's pushing for Terry Funk to get his return match with mm. Harley in Knoxville. Mm. So I continued, uh, you know, saying, you know, unlike three weeks earlier, this was one of his family's favorite matches. We had wrestled three weeks earlier and I beat him, but it wasn't a Texas death match. This time it's a Texas death match. And I, I, I told fans the Texas death match. I've been in many of them was one of the most dangerous and bloody matches ever devised. It's diabolical and it's dangerous as as can possibly be in any any type of match. And, you, and I had to beat Terry's brother. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, Dory Jr. I went to Amarillo to, in order to wrestle Terry for the world championship. I had to go to Amarillo and beat his brother in a Texas yeah. death match in Amarillo. It's <laughs> like, what is the deal here, man? What do I got to do here, you know? So this time I said, I'm going to beat the second funk and another Texas death match, and I'm going to do it right here in Knoxville. Well, the studio popped, and, you know, and I finished by saying, you know, Les, I almost wish Terry Funk was here uh, on this day so so we could get this feud settled right here. But since he's not here, I said, I guess next Friday's going to have to do, man. We're, I'm going to see him again next Friday, and uh, we'll take care of it then. So next match, live match on the on the. Stood the studio up uh, when a very unusual team, as I mentioned earlier, 
Mr. Knoxville and Tony Charles entered the, the uh, studio. And uh, they had a really fast-paced match, man. And it really featured Tony Charles with some of those throws, those English throws, and the big bumps he was able to give guys. And obviously, the match ended with old Mr. Knoxville climbing to that top rope and smashing somebody's throat with another knee drop. And the studio crowd, they never sat down during that match. They stood up when Charles and Mr. Knoxville came in the studio, and they never sat down. The entire match. Then they they never stopped cheering in the interview. Now, Mr. Knoxville and Charles, they went to the uh, set and they laid out their plan to get the Southeastern belts from the Von Steigers the next Friday night. <laughs> Fans were really, really into it and loving it. <laughs> That's pretty awesome right there. Of course, the Von Steigers were ready with the German crab, right? Oh, yeah. I'm sure they had to, <laughs> they had their own idea of how they were going to handle business. But, uh, they didn't get an opportunity to talk. We just gave the whole interview to Mr. Knoxville and Tony Charles. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Hey, good place for a break. Let's do that now. We're going to come back with gorgeous George Jr. in the personality profile. This legendary episode number 199 will continue in a moment right here. If you haven't bought your piece of wrestling history, the DVD five-pack of action from two of the greatest territories in the world, Southeastern and Continental, what are you waiting for? TNStud.com. Stud Store. If you want to own and experience the angles, matches, interviews, and stars of the 1980s in your own home, what are you waiting for? TNStud.com. Stud Store. If you want to see Hulk Hogan, Arn Anderson, Brad Armstrong, Lord Humongous, Wendell Cooley, Mr. Olympia, Dr. Tom. Pritchard, Dirty White Boy, Doug Furness, and many others before they became stars. What are you waiting for? TNstud.com Stud Store. For less than $40, you can own 67 matches and 12 hours of pure wrestling history that'll never be done again. And watch it from the confines of your own home. It's simple. Go to TNstud.com now. Click Stud Store and get it all for only $39.99 and no shipping. Or you can wish you had purchased it long before it's gone. The choice is yours. Own it or wish you could. Welcome back. It's another Studcast. David Summers here with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, on episode number 199. Next week is going to be absolutely legendary. Episode number 200 next week on the Studcast. And listen, don't forget that Super Studcast number 41 Part one is available, and that's Arn Anderson. And it is a true deep dive with information about Arn Anderson. And if he, if you've been a fan of Arn, you've got to hear this one. Episode number one is pretty chilling, and he's going to be on part two as well. That's three hours plus on Super Studcast number 41, part one and two. Find it at tnstud.com. Every episode is there. and Every Studcast episode is there, too. You can also get it at patreon.com slash studcast. Back to the program. And where do we pick up with the, I think, maybe the personality profile, Stud? That's correct. Uh, you and old, you and Mr. Pickles there, you're still on top of it, man. So, uh, yeah, in this personality profile, we've got gorgeous George Jr., who was on the show for the first time last week ever. And uh, Les even asked him in the last show, uh, you know, maybe I maybe I could get you for a personality profile the following week. So that's where we are. And the stomper 
Gorgeous George is sitting there by Les and the stompers behind him. And uh, he's got that big old giant steel truck shock, man. That, and he's cranking that thing away, man. And he does it for the entire five minutes. I mean, he does not get tired. The stomper never runs out of gas. So Gorgeous George Jr. And, and I'm going to call him Gigi, you know, and make, to keep it short. He talked first about his famous father, Gorgeous George. He actually, Dave, got tears in his eyes as he was recalling his father's tremendous wrestling ability in class. Oh, right. And, uh, yeah. But then when he said, you know, about how classy his dad was in the same breath, he insulted everybody out there watching and, and by saying, unlike all those sitting out there watching this. Well, of course. <laughs> I'm sure his pinky was in the air for that. Yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> he, he, he had a way about him. So, so yeah. he talked about how long he had waited to gain control of the Mongolian stomper. And he called him for the first time ever on the show. And this is what he's going to call him from then on. He called him the eighth wonder of the world. His Mongolian stomp. Wow. Okay. And he said how he felt, you know, he did a little bit on the upcoming boxing match between his stomper and Bob Armstrong. And he said to Les, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. He says the stomper is a world-class wrestler, not a boxer. And he said the Southeastern officials were even more biased about this whole deal because they're going to allow the Asian beast, he had a name for Tor Tanaka. He says, they're going to allow the Asian beast, Tor Tanaka, to be in Bob Armstrong's corner. Because <laughs> how can that be fair, you know? So, And then he went straight off into another totally area. I mean, like an insane person, he went in a totally different direction. He, he started talking to Mr. Knoxville. And he says, he made an offer to Mr. Knoxville. He offered, uh, you know, Ronnie, the opportunity to come back to the beautiful side of wrestling, the way he put it, where all the intelligent wrestlers were. You're in the wrong dressing room, basically, he said to it, you know. <laughs> so, and Les, Les was like, wow, he was visibly shocked. I mean, you know, he, this was totally unexpected. I mean, so Les asked him, he goes, uh, you know, hey, uh, what's with your interest in Mr. Knoxville? You know, and so. And then, uh, you know, before Gigi could answer, Les started explaining. He said, maybe you don't understand, uh, gorgeous George, uh, that, uh, that before you arrived, he says, uh, the Stompers had a manager. His name was Don Carson. And he said, he made that same pitch earlier to Ronnie Garvin. And, and it didn't work, you know. And, in fact, Les said, uh, it backfired on Don Carson. <laughs> he said, Ronnie Garvin went from being booed to a fan favorite, you know, and Les asked how Gigi's proposal was going to be any different than Carson's proposal that Carson made, you know, for him to come and join Carson's camp, basically. So Gigi answered very, oh, he was, he was cool. He was a cool dude. Gigi answered, you know, he says, the difference is, uh, Les Thatcher, my proposal is based on green. And he just popped it right out, man. He goes, 
money talks and bullshit walks. <laughs> Boy, they jumped in the they jumped in the control room. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so obviously they had to edit out that word <laughs> before the tape was played. But I'm sure it was said very classily though. Yeah. Oh he, yes he did. Yeah. He, he did yeah. everything with class, you know. So so then, you know, to make his point, uh, Gigi stood up from his chair and he reached in his pocket. And he pulled out a wad of $100 bills. I mean, wow. It, it was probably at least 200 of them. You know, I mean, uh, you know, $20,000 in cash probably in his hand. He couldn't even hold all of those hundreds. It was just a handful of money. And uh, Les's mouth fell open. The camera's on him, and his, just, his mouth dropped like, oh, my God. So Gigi went on, man. He says, uh you know, he started telling Les his father had left him immensely wealthy. He said that every man had his prize and that he had never failed to be able to buy whoever he wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Les was Les was something he rarely was. He was absolutely speechless. So Gigi, he just rolled on with it, man. He didn't wait on Les. So Gigi asked the cameraman, he says, get a close-up of this handful of money. <laughs> you know, And they did. And when he could see in the monitor that uh, they were showing all those $100 bills, he spoke then directly to Mr. Knoxville. He says, uh, Mr. Knoxville, Ronnie Garvin, whichever you prefer. He <laughs> said, it's not a question of when it's going to happen. It's a question of how much you want. Uh, uh. So the profile closed with that shot of a handful of money. Uh, and, and not just Les was shocked. You could have heard a pin drop in the studio. Fans were like, wow, what is he doing? What's going on now? You know, so as soon as the profile's over, obviously the third match goes in the ring. And boy, Bob Armstrong, he brought him back to life, man. Uh, he hit that studio and they were off and running again. And he started out showing his wrestling ability in the match, but he finished it with the boxing skills because that's what he had the next Friday night. And uh, he knocked out his opponent uh, with one of those right hands. Uh, and, and I think Bob used the term for the first time ever in his interview. He said, I jacked his jaw, by gosh. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. so uh, yeah, that's going to become a term that uh, is going to become big in Southeastern wrestling. <laughs> so then he really set the studio on fire with his interview. He grabbed the boxing gloves. But there were a pair of gloves sitting on the set. And he, he, he put them on, you know, as best he could. And then he talked about training to be a boxer as a young man, that he had some boxing experience. And about how happy he was to have Tor Tanaka in his corner for this boxing match the next Friday night against the Stomper. And he finished with how he was going to jack the Stomper's jaw next Friday night, just like he did a few minutes ago on TV when he knocked the dude out. So Southeastern Championship match was the last match on the card. Stomper was in the ring. He'd been introduced. And I entered the studio, and I had the big trophy with me, and I handed it over top rope to the announcer, Phil Rainey. The trophy was as tall as Phil Rainey. It might have been a little taller than Phil Rainey, as a matter of fact. So when I started into the ring, Stomper jumped me, and he began one of his famous all-out assault, man. I mean, it was like, wow, for three or four minutes, he was just on top of me. 
as soon as the stomper attacked me, Phil Rainey, who was horrified of him, he fled to the floor, man. <laughs> he almost died face first on the floor to get out of the ring. So when Mac, who was the referee, uh, Mac McMurray, uh, rang the bell. And uh, Stomper gave me his best, man, for quite a few minutes there. And then I finally started to come back. And when I did the studio crowd, they really got into it. So the Stomper kicked me in the stomach. By the time I was really getting the crowd into it, I grabbed the headlock on him uh, just to, to kind of get control of him again so I could go further with the comeback. And he shot me into the referee, man. Mm. And, uh, we hit heads and we both went down. The Stomper grabbed me up for a slam almost immediately. And uh, as he was about to get me off the floor, I hooked him in a small package, but there's no referee there to count. So I <laughs> held him there, man. Then obviously no count, but after a few seconds passed, he finally kicked out and I was still down. I was still, uh, I was still wasn't uh, back to my senses fully yet. So he grabbed me up again and he set me up this time for a suplex and I reversed. I suplexed him. And I covered him. Uh, the referee was still down. Gorgeous George Jr. came into the ring, and uh, he clasped his fists together, and he dropped on his knees. He was going to hit me in the back because I was, at this point, on top of the stomper. And I moved, and he hit the stomper. Studio popped again. And then the unthinkable happened, man. As, as I rolled over on my hands and knees, Terry Funk appeared in the studio, jumped in the ring, what? and he kicked me in the face with his cowboy boot, and it cut me. And uh, I went backwards, laying in the ring, and uh, he jumped out of the ring, and he disappeared as fast as he had come into the ring. He was gone. Did the boot cut you? Yeah, his boot cut me, yes. Yes, yeah. his boot cut me, and they kicked me in the right above the eye. And, Ow. And they yeah. kept that bone right there on my eye, and it cut yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, Stomper covered me, and uh, the ref finally counted me out. And uh, Stomper was the new TV champion. The studio crowd, they were extremely angry, obviously. And uh, mm. they were trying to tell the referee about Funk, but the uh, ref, what's he going to do at this point? You know, he, <laughs> so he, didn't, uh, he, didn't, he didn't see it, you know. So Wait a minute. It, Are you saying the referee's not going to take the word of the crowd? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If he does, he's probably going to be out of a job. <laughs> Pretty safe. Yeah. So he rang the bell. Uh, he got the trophy and he gave it to Stomper. And he and uh, GG, Stomper and GG, uh, mm -hmm. left the ring, man. They had some big old smiles on their faces. And uh, Mac came back to me and, uh, and he saw I was bleeding. And uh, there was some fans. The fans got up out of their seats. They came right up to the ring and uh, somebody handed him a handkerchief. And he tried to stop the bleeding over my eye. And then Bob Armstrong came to the ring and he helped me out and he kept me back to the dressing room. Wow. So Gorgeous George Jr., the Stomper and Terry Funk all show up for the last interview at the set. Uh, Stomper's carrying the TV trophy. Uh, Gorgeous George got the Stomper's belt, Southeastern belt. He's got the trophy and the belt now. And Terry Funk is just there laughing hysterically, man. He's he's he's. <laughs> He's having a ball, man. So <laughs> Funk starts the interview. And, you know, he says, uh, Ron Fuller shouldn't have wished earlier in the show that I'd be here today so that he could stop this problem with me. <laughs> right. He goes, well, so look what he got for it. <laughs> so, he said, so he said, that blood and that cut from, from my boot 
that's nothing compared to what I'm going to do to him on Friday night in the Texas death match. He goes, he's <laughs> going to be so bloody. Nobody will recognize him. And he said, Tennesseans have never seen anything like what's going to happen in Knoxville next Friday night. He goes, uh, that he's, he promised that he says, I'll never lose to Ron Fuller again. And that he is going to be horribly beaten up Friday night. And then I'm going to be back six weeks later after that to meet Harley race for the world championship belt of mine that he's got. So Gigi kind of stepped in, took over and, uh, Terry jumped up, man. He raised the stomper's hand. He grabbed the belt and then and, and he gave, put the belt up there and then the stomper's other hand and he grabbed it. He, he was in the background and just having a huge celebration. And Gigi guaranteed his stomper's going to knock out Bob Armstrong and tore Tanaka too if he need to on next Friday night. So, uh, <laughs> so I was supposed to interview. But I couldn't get to the set soon enough. The show was running long, and you only had 60 minutes. If you didn't get there, you know, it show's over. You don't get your interview. But, you know, Dave, the show was so – it was so good. And, and that, that, that surprise at the very end, I didn't think it was going to matter. You know, there was such heat in that studio, from that small crowd that, uh, that you could put into the studio – that uh, a lot of them stayed there outside the building. I didn't leave the studio for an hour, and uh, a lot of them were still there when I left to go home. Wow. That is a wild finish to a TV show. You can, That's amazing. You talked about Terry Funk earlier in the show, had, having no idea he was in the building and hiding. Then doing something like that, so it's no wonder Southeastern fans hated this dude so much. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you, and and what was great, I mean, I always said that the wrestling, wrestling heat fires up fans, man. It's the heat that gets fans fired up that fills the buildings, man. And this show ended with tremendous heat. No doubt. All right. So what happened the next Friday night? So Tor Tanaka, he got a great reception, man. And when he came, when he came back uh, into the Coliseum, and he easily, obviously, beat Bill Dundee, uh, Robert Fuller, my brother, uh, beat Norvell Austin, Bob Orton Jr. Got past Ron Wright. He had a tough time doing it, but he did get a win over Ron Wright. He did not get to drop him on his head, though. Uh, Mister Knoxville and Tony Charles. They won the Southeastern Tag Championship match, but they didn't get the belts because the Von Steigers obviously got themselves disqualified to save their belts. Uh, Bob Armstrong won the boxing match in the fifth round with some help from Tor Tanaka. I guess you'd call it some help. Tor Tanaka actually got in the ring, and uh, he took Stomper apart, man, with some karate moves. Uh, instead of using boxing gloves on him, uh, he used some karate on him. and. Uh, the following week, the fans are going to come back to see what we're going to call the next week, the Battle of the Far East, and the Mongolian Stomper is going to be in the ring to face off against Tor Tanaka. Terry and I, we gave the fans a great Texas death match, uh, lots of bravado, which is, uh, you know, what uh, Terry liked a lot of, man, uh, a lot of bumps and, uh, and a lot of blood. Uh, I finally hooked my fuller leg lock on Terry for the first time uh, in Knoxville for sure in the middle of the ring. And, and the, because it was a Texas best match, it was after a countless falls. And, uh, you know, when you got beat, uh, you had a 30 second rest period and you had mm -hmm. 10, 
10 seconds to get to your feet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't even know how many falls it went, but this Texas death match probably went uh, close to 40 minutes. It was a tremendous event. And when I got that toehold on him, he sold that hold so good. And for so long before he actually gave up that I kind of felt sorry for him myself. It's a very painful hold. And, you know, I was cranking it pretty good. I'm thinking, wow, man, you know, when is he going to give up? And and at one point I, I looked at him, he raised his body up and he was actually crying real tears. Wow. <laughs> Are you kidding? Oh, like, tears were coming out of his eyes. And I was wow. like, wow, I'd never seen anybody <laughs> fight that hole like that. Yeah. He was just determined not to give up. But then he finally did. And he could not get to his feet after the 30 second rest period. His right leg just wasn't going to work for him. And, uh, you know, I'd probably worked with Terry, Terry Funk, maybe 15 times in my life at that point. But in that Texas death match in Knoxville that night, I gained more respect for him than I ever had. Wow. And, and that's just based on his ability to sell it. That that's, that's pretty amazing right there. So what was, you, you had to have a huge crowd for this. Well, when I got in the ring before the start of the match, I looked closely at the, at the crowd. And, and, you know, all four sides of the building. And I'll be honest with you, I couldn't tell any difference between the size of that crowd and that all-time record from two weeks earlier with Harley. That later on that night, I got the box office figure. It was 6,105. Huge. You know, That's amazing. <laughs> oh, no doubt. I mean, and with Harley, you were at, what, 63? Yeah, 63. 63.50. I mean, yeah. God. All right. That's, that's just incredible. All right. I think this is going to be a good time. Let's get that cold drink and get underneath the learning tree. So remind us again, set it up for us again about the question and who asked the question. All right. uh, This question came from a gentleman named Nathan Hatton. And uh, Nathan asked, before they all look like bodybuilders in the mid 1980s, did most wrestlers rely on matches to keep fit? And who were wrestlers noted for any other type of fitness training? Uh, great question, both of them, man. And, and, you know, sometimes I get these questions, Dave, and, and I sit on them for a while because I knew there was someone that, I, that fit the second question just perfectly. And uh, so uh, we're going to get to that in just a minute. So let's start with the first question that mm-hmm. he asked. And that was before bodybuilders in the mid-1980s, did most wrestlers rely on matches to keep fit? And yes, they certainly did, Mr. Hatton. Uh, they certainly did. Uh, wrestling was one of the most strenuous sports on the planet. Uh, wrestling required not only you have the strength in your body, but you got to have strong lungs, too. You blow up so badly in wrestling, and you can get in tremendous shape by just wrestling every day. And that's what wrestlers were doing. They were wrestling six, seven days a week. In Australia, for three months that I was there, I wrestled 10 times a week some weeks. So, you know, you just you want the more you wrestled, the better shape you got in. So bodybuilders, obviously, they wanted to look stronger. And uh, their thinking was that it's going to make them more successful as a professional wrestler. And it did for some of them. Some guys got big enough that they did make a little more money because they had the big body. But there was no 
way to get in better total physical shape than being in a wrestling ring for 20 to 60 minutes a night. You could not duplicate that uh, with bodybuilding. So Bob Armstrong, he had a bodybuilder's look, you know, but he earned every muscle that he had the hard way. Beginning back, he started his bodybuilding back in the 1950s. 30 years before steroids ever came into the into the situation, you know, and uh, and the steroids made it easy to get that big body. Uh, he did it the hard way, man. He didn't he never touched a steroid. He never had to because he was so adamant and so dedicated to his working out in the years prior to the 1980s, when steroids made it much easier to look like a bodybuilder. Almost all professional wrestlers relied on wrestling every night to keep them in shape. So, Mr. Hatton, it's your second question that really got my attention. And and the second question you asked was, who were wrestlers noted for any other type of fitness training? Now, one of those wrestlers had just arrived in Southeastern. He was from the United Kingdom. His name was Tony Charles. And he was not only an extremely nice person, he was an absolutely shining personality. Oh, he was a great person to be around. So shortly after his arrival, I went to visit him and his family to get to know him a little bit better. And I did that with a lot of my wrestlers. I like to meet their family. I like to see their home life, how they live. And so I visited Tony Charles. And he introduced me the day I was there to a completely different type of fitness training. He trained with Indian clubs called mudguards. This is crazy. You're going to dig this, Dave. And I'm talking about these mudguards, these Indian clubs, they were called, came from the Indian subcontinent, obviously located on the Indian Ocean, the country of India, right? Right. And these clubs all had different weights and sizes, and they were extremely useful for building your grip strength, for building your shoulders, and for your cardio, man, for for building your lungs. And they were made of either wood or metal. They were in a spherical shape, kind of a round shape, Mm -hmm. uh, mounted on a shaft with a spike at the top so that you could get a good grip on the club, right? Right. And he had three sets of clubs, two of each set, two of each size. He had a 20-pounder, 30-pounders, and 40-pound clubs. And he used these two clubs, both of them at once, and he swung them behind his back in several different ways. You know, uh, he would change the way he was doing it, but uh, I got the idea of what he was doing, you know. And he reached and got the 40-pounders which were, these things were about three feet tall and they were made out of solid wood and they were about two feet thick, you know? And he grabbed those two 40-pound mudgars, those Indian clubs, wow. and, uh, and he started swinging them over his head, behind his back and around to the front of his body. And he had a certain pattern that he would use that he controlled them. He had tremendous control over them. They had such control that it kept them from hitting each other. Mm-hmm. And he probably went five minutes straight without stopping and never did those clubs touch each other. Wow. And at the end, though, 
he was obviously out of breath and, and, and totally exhausted. And then he says to me, it's your turn, Ron. <laughs> so, so i'd never seen this before in my life i was like oh come on now you know uh, so obviously i picked the 20 pounders the smallest club <laughs> right you know so, and, I, and even with just the 20 pound clubs the first time i started to swing them i instantly recognized the difficulty of controlling them while i was swinging them in the pattern right and uh -huh. they just kept colliding and, um, you know, and I had to start over and over again because the, the, they were hitting each other. Right. So right. I probably never got to an entire minute without having to stop, you know, and that, and I went to that maybe that minute in which I did not crack the clubs against each other. And I was exhausted. My shoulders and arms burned like they were on fire. I was like, wow, so mighty. I just yeah. looked them up. They, they, they look like. They look like maybe a bowling pin with a longer neck yes. on them. Yes. They, much thicker um, than a bowling pin at the bottom, right, much yeah, thinner yeah. than a bowling pin at the top, yeah. where you could get a good grip on their handles. But you know how old and how far they, these things go back in time? They found that they were using these Indian clubs in that part of the world four centuries before Christ was born. Oh, wow. Wow. I mean, so he, he's training in a way that nobody, nobody in America had any knowledge of practically, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know? So, and then during the same time period, me and Rob and, and Bob Armstrong, we're working out regularly with weights, man. Uh, this is in the same time frame in 1977. I got more exhausted in less than three minutes trying to do that stuff with Tony Charles Indian clubs that I was after an hour working out with weights, you know? So Mr. Hatton, I want to thank you for your question. You know, I mean, uh, I hope I've answered it properly, you know, but Tony Charles definitely had another type of fitness training and by golly, it was tremendous. I can tell you that it had made him one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. And I could see why in three minutes. Wow. That's probably going to be one of my favorite lear learning tree segments, Ron. I can just see you swinging those clubs and ducking, trying to keep from knocking yourself out and <laughs> laughing about it the whole time. So, wow. <laughs> so you got the picture, Dave. That's, <laughs> right. that's pretty brilliant way, uh, with the way it went, man. I, and I couldn't stop laughing because I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it right. And I was just ducking and ducking. and I was like, uh, this is dangerous, man. So, uh, you know, and I hope everybody out there got the feeling about how much I love Tony Charles. He was a remarkable human being. And I want to ask, too, because a lot of us have seen the Iranian sheik from the WWE way back in the day and maybe maybe in his own territory. He did, was it not mudguards that he used? When yeah, the Iron Sheik. The yeah, Iron Sheik used mudguards. Yes, he yeah. did. He trained with mudguards. Yeah, so you know, there's footage out there somewhere. So I have seen I've I've seen those being used, and it and obviously even with the sheik that took a, a pretty uh, some some talent to get those things going. So man, that's you uh, have to be strong. You have yeah, to be. Yeah. Uh, you have to have great stamina. You have to have great coordination. Wow, <laughs> it's it it. If I I said anybody that wants to have themselves a really really butt-kicking exercise and a <laughs> training session, 
I would highly recommend you get you a couple of mudguards, man. <laughs> Find mudguards at Academy Sports and Outdoors. <laughs> I kind of doubt they have those, but well, that's awesome, Ron. All right. Listen on Facebook, folks. Simply like and follow Ron on either or both his two available Facebook pages, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud or author Ron Fuller to become friends with a legend, Twitter or Instagram. It's Ron Fuller Welch on both. Don't forget that fantastic Southeastern Continental five pack of DVDs, 67 matches, more than 12 hours of history. See many of the great stars that came from these territories, from Arn Anderson to Hulk Hogan to the Lord Humongous. There are too many to name. Almost 100 stars in this great offer at tnstud.com. Click Stud Store for your historic five-pack. Only $39.99. That includes shipping. Super Studcast number 41, part one, is now available and listen, I know you got to say a couple of words about this one because it's absolutely awesome, Ron. Yeah, we've talked about it in the beginning here, but I, I can't say too much about this. I mean, um, wow, it, I think it's one of my favorite uh, Super Stud casts so far. Uh, and uh, Arn, man, he he is really, he is in this right from the start, man. His story is magic. And, uh, and it's not an easy one for him to tell. You're going to be able to see that in the first few minutes of it. He struggles with with all this honesty and wow. and uh, this story, this uh, this real story of his life, and I think fans are going to be talking about this one for a long time, Dave. And, and Ron, listen, I mean, it was kind of personal for him. Do you know if he's told this anywhere else? Oh, I, I, I'm sure that he has. Uh, he has his own podcast, and you know, he's he's redoing his podcast. He's going back and changing his format on his podcast. And he's actually going to start uh, doing kind of the way I do mine in a way. Uh, you know, I started out with my grandfather. He's going to go back to the beginning and work through his entire career. Wow. Yeah. So he's going to kind of do his own story about his history in wrestling. His story about his That's, life. And I'm yeah. sure in this, when he talks about this, I'm sure he will, he will tell it just like he told it to me, maybe even with more, more feeling. I don't know how you put more feeling in it, what he did, though. I mean, it's really, it's, it's amazing stuff. Uh, well, you've, you've sold me on this. So Super Studcast number 41, part one, and then Arn is going to come back for part two, and that is included as well. You can get it at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three hours, fascinating wrestling history, only two ninety nine. It is still the best deal in wrestling. All right, and listen, Brutus is still out there terrorizing the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. This novel is being compared to Jaws for a very good reason. It has almost 50 five-star global reviews. It's the best story from America's storyteller, Ron Fuller Welch, and it's the best one he's ever told. Get it today at Amazon.com Brutus Novel or get the special autograph copy at TNStud.com. Click on Stud Store and get ready for something very special. Only $19.99 for the book, $29.99, and the stud will put his John Henry in the back, and he will not write John Henry. He'll he'll write his own name. Get this book before it becomes a movie. All right, we're at the end of this studcast, so can we now hear about next week's 200th studcast? What's it going to be about? The person that won the contest, who we're going to talk to on studcast number 200. All right, yes. And, you know, uh, I think... Uh, I, I, I'm very happy that um, uh, Mr. Pickles is uh, 
slowed down and that he's going to <laughs> going to rest here as we close out the program. Yeah, uh, yep. the winner of the contest, and this contest was had on all of my social media sites as a gentleman named John Edwards, and here is most of what he suggested. I mean, he he had a long suggestion, but this is the gist of what he suggested, I guess we should say. He says, we are 200 stud casts down and well over 600 remaining just to get to the end of USA Championship Wrestling in 1988. And uh, on most anniversary celebrations, people look back at the best stories, most popular episodes, etc., and rarely, if ever, truly build to the future. But you are, Ron, the master of having a blow-off and still yet building to something even bigger. So with your booking style in mind, I was thinking it would be killer to have the following, a double-length episode done in two parts. Part one called The Ride So Far, with clips of the most popular high spots of the first 200 episodes. The following week, part two, called The Road Ahead, with what's to come, the opening of Southeastern Pensacola, the Knoxville War of 1979, the infamous Plan B video, the turn of Bob Armstrong heel for the first time in his career, and how that led to the longest-running family feud in wrestling history, the start of the stud stable, formation of continental wrestling, how and why, expansion from the Gulf Coast to Ohio, Sale of Continental, and the start of your last wrestling company, USA Championship Wrestling. All right. So no wonder Mr. Edwards was the winner. Fans are going to get a little of everything next week on Studcast number 200. I can't wait for the next episode. And we'll hear clips from the ride so far, right? That's it. We're going to do uh, next episode uh, clips. Uh, hopefully, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to get as many as 12, uh, 14 clips out of the first 200 stud cast. And uh, that's my goal for next week. And then uh, we're going to come back with a second part the following week, and it's going to be uh, the road ahead. I want to thank everybody, obviously, for riding with us again today. And this is a, this has been fun. Uh, all of them are fun. And uh, I look forward to number 200, both parts. And please take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. God bless you too, Stud. Can't wait for next week. This is David Summers reminding you that Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.